We're beginning a new series this morning on the book of Ephesians. So if you want to turn to chapter 1 of Ephesians, page 1241 there in the Pew Bible, I need to tell you a true story that happened to my Aunt Marie who lived in the city of Chicago. The laundry facilities had broken down at the apartment that she lived at, and so she was forced for a number of weeks to go to the local laundromat there in the community, not people from the building. And so over time, she met this woman who seemed to have limited means, who dressed that way, who seemed to be there almost every time she went to the laundromat. I think it was her way of connecting with people and staying warm. And my aunt, because of the heart that she had for people, befriended this woman. And they would, uh, sometimes she would, uh, my aunt would take her out for breakfast. Sometimes she would bring her some food so that she would have something to eat for dinner. They went so far as they were once invited to this woman's meager apartment. They noticed how little she had and so my aunt and my cousin went and bought her a television set. Now, that's before televisions were cheap. Nowadays, they're pretty inexpensive. But it was a major investment, and so they bought this large TV and carried it to her little meager apartment and set it up and ministered to this woman. And I found out about the story, and I was praying for this woman, and eventually she passed away. And my aunt, at the time, worked for the public administrator's office for, the, for Cook County, not just the city, for the Cook County. And so her death notice came across her desk. And surprise, this woman was worth gobs of money. She was very wealthy. Now, do you find that strange? Was she foolish? Maybe a little eccentric? My question for you this morning is, how many of us are living lives just like that woman we heard about this morning? We have limitless spiritual wealth at our disposal, and yet we live like beggars, do we not sometimes? Oh God, please take care of this. Oh God, if you see it in your... And we beseech heaven. And our Father looks at us in our prayers and says, my son, it's already yours. It's part of your inheritance You can draw upon this account. I'm learning as I grow in my own faith that sometimes we fail to understand all that we are and all that we have in Christ. We don't. We live in abject spiritual poverty at times. And we surround ourselves with people who are living just like us because we don't know any better. And especially these first few messages in Ephesians are going to begin, I think, 
to help us understand who we are and all that we have in Christ. So turn with me to Ephesians 1. Now let me give you the layout of the book of Ephesians. It's very simple. Ephesians is six chapters long. Chapters 1, 2, 3, doctrine. Chapters 4, 5, 6, application. The first three chapters, who we are in Christ. Chapters 4 to 6, what we should be in ourselves. How we should live out this doctrine. The first three chapters talk about our position. Chapters 4 to 6, what is our practice? And so do not roll your eyes in your head and say, oh man, it's three chapters of doctrine. No, it is true, but it's very practical. I think it'll help us understand how to live in light of all the riches that are ours in Jesus Christ. And Paul is, his goal with this book He wants his readers, which is his readers in Ephesus, but also us, to live a lifestyle that reflects those spiritual blessings that God has placed in our lives. So, Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at the background of the book. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, To the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who's the author? Well, it says right there, Paul. And he he is called an apostle, which means one sent. God sent him to Ephesus. God sent him to write this book. And notice, it was, he was an apostle by the will of God. He was appointed by God. Now, we just kind of read over that. But do you understand what Paul is saying to his readers and to us? This was not his plan. God, this was God's choosing. It was God's plan, not Paul's. How many of you have made plans for your life and you've laid it all out and God interrupts your plans and says, I have a different plan for you. And do you at that point cop an attitude? Don't like this. I don't think so. I was in college. I was in a business administration track. I was there to learn business so I could take over the family business. And then God stepped into my life and radically saved me and began to change me. And then he called me into ministry. And one of the hardest days I ever had to do was to go home to my dad and say, Dad, your plans and my plans for my life, God has changed. I am headed to ministry. Now, my dad was not saved. That made no sense to him why I would be turning my back on a large business. Because God 
had a different plan for me. Now, what was his plan? Paul's plan. He studied under Gamaliel, who was at the time one of the greatest Jewish teachers of his day, who was based in Jerusalem. Paul was to become a Pharisee. God dramatically converted him on the road to Damascus. And he was on his way to persecute Christians. And God says, no, I have something different for you to do. That's the author. Who are the recipients and what about the city of Ephesus? It says, the saints who are in Ephesus. Those set apart for God's use. Faithful, it says as well, too, in verse 1. Trustworthy. And notice this little phrase, in Christ Jesus. When I was probably not even one year old in the Lord, and I still have this Bible, I took out my New Testament, and I began to underline all the places it said, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Him in the beloved, in just this first portion of Ephesians, I think there's like nine different times it mentions it. In the book of Ephesians itself, there's over 27 times in Christ is mentioned. As a matter of fact, the whole New Testament, there's over 130 references to that phrase. It's important that you understand that when you are saved, when you are a saint, you are in Christ Jesus. And we're going to see that played out, especially in this first chapter. Now, the city of Ephesus is fascinating. Ephesus was one of five major cities in the Roman Empire. Population approaching 250,000 people. There was also the temple of Artemis. It was a commercial, political, and religious center for all of Asia Minor. So Paul is writing this letter to a very key congregation or series of congregations there in that part of the world at that time. Now the setting. I think we keep forgetting the setting of this book. I mean, if you read Ephesians, it it lifts you up, right? It is encouraging. It's challenging at times. Where is Paul as he is writing this? He's in prison. He is in Rome in a stinking prison. And he is writing Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. I imagine if I were incarcerated, would I have enough sense to say, I need to write some long letters to friends in other cities? I don't think so. I'm thinking about how I would survive. Now the greeting in verse 2. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very standard 
greeting from Paul to most of the churches that he writes to in the New Testament. Grace, unmerited favor. You're going to hear grace upon grace throughout this book, unmerited favor. It is God's steadfast love towards men. And then he says, in peace. Peace is the relational state as a result of what grace brings into our life. And so what's amazing is grace tends to be a Roman greeting and peace, shalom, tends to be a Jewish greeting. So it almost tells us in advance he's going to be talking about this Greek or Roman Jewish connection. He doesn't want to leave either one of them out. We get to verse 3, and you need to understand that from verse 3, if you look in your Bible, verse 3 to verse 14, you see that long section there? In the Greek, that is one sentence. 202 words in the original. I mean, English teachers go crazy. They would call that in our essays a run-on sentence. Paul can't contain himself. He starts in on this sentence and he doesn't end up till verse 14. A number of Greek scholars call this the most cumbersome sentence in the Greek language. He just keeps piling words upon words. And so it takes a little bit to kind of navigate yourself through this long sentence. Now today, we're only going to go through verse 6. We will finish up through verse 14 next Sunday. Verse 3. Almost like the topic sentence of this section. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, there's that in Christ again, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now the word blessed has the idea of to speak well of, to praise, we get a word in our language called eulogy, where you speak well of someone. And I I guess I will tell you, our 30th anniversary here, I left here walking about a foot off the ground, but I turned to my wife that afternoon and I said, Barb, I don't need a funeral now. I've heard all the good words I need to hear, I think, for the rest of my life. Now, I know that's not totally true, but you so lifted me and my wife. And Paul is saying, God is to be praised. God is to be spoken well of. Now, there's a reason right here, because he has blessed us, it says right here. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Would you notice something in that, which we just kind of read over and we're excited about? It's past tense. He has blessed us. Past tense. 
it's already occurred. We don't need to ask, God, please bless me. God says, I have blessed you. He poured it all into my life already. He asks us by faith to appropriate those blessings he's already given us. Does that make sense? Then why do we sometimes beg God in prayer for blessings? And these blessings, these are spiritual blessings. These are spiritual enrichments needed for my spiritual life. It's been given to me already. Now, I was so excited because I need you to turn to your message overflow. Probably, and I'm not exaggerating, 40 years ago I read a book, a commentary on Ephesians. And this pyramid of grace appeared by William MacDonald. And this has stuck with me all these years. Now think about it. Paul could say, we have been given blessings, amen. But he says, no, no. Notice how he stacks words upon words. He said, no, I'm going to give you spiritual blessings. You know what that means? It can't be stolen. Moth and rust cannot decay it. It is safe. It can't be seen, but... It is as real as anything else. Spiritual blessings. Oh, no, no. But he he stacks another word and he says, every spiritual blessing. Now, what am I lacking, folks? What are you lacking spiritually? Nothing. Every spiritual blessing that you need, he has already given to you. Now, He stacks more on there. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That means who's going to maintain it? Who's going to make sure that it all stays there in my account? It's God himself. It's not in a local bank. It's in heavenly bank. And Paul's not done. Let's, Let's stack everything else. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Wow. That means that when I need to draw on that account, I have to go through Christ who loves me, who died for me, who provides all of this for me. And the Father says, this is how it's going to work. And Paul stacks up this glorious pyramid of grace for us. In verses 4 to 6, he's going to talk about the selection of the Father. If you want to fill in your blank there in the outline. The selection of the Father. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, there's that in Christ thought again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Point A, the Father's choosing slash election. The Father's choosing election. Notice first in this passage, verse 4, the time frame. When does this all take place? Before the foundation of the world. That is before creation. Before creation. Now think about this. We were on God's mind even before he started putting creation into place. And he didn't just have humanity in mind, he had you in mind. That's the first truth. Number two, notice secondly, God's purpose. The word that in verse four, which often shows purpose. That we should be holy and blameless before him. God's purpose for choosing us was that God preordained that we should be holy and blameless in his presence. That's what he wants us to be. And before he even started creating, did he know the fall was going to take place when he did creation? Yes. He still created us. He created everything else. But before, he already had a plan worked out so that ultimately one day I would stand in his presence holy and blameless. Third truth coming out of this verse, election. Now that is a hot topic. Entire books have been written on this topic of election. And what it is pitting is God's sovereign choosing versus human free will. Election versus free will. Theologians have debated it. Churches have split. Sides have been taken. Go to your overflow section, please. I have put some things I want you to hear and I want you to see so that you understand The Bible never teaches that God chooses men to be lost. In the fact that he chooses some to be saved does not imply that he arbitrarily condemns all the rest. He never condemns men who deserve to be saved. Now, here's the truth. There are none. But he does save some who ought to be condemned. But there's another side of the story. The same Bible that teaches sovereign election, which what this verse teaches, also teaches human responsibility. No one can use the doctrine of election as an excuse for not being saved. God makes a bona fide offer of salvation to all people everywhere. Anyone who can be saved by repenting of his sins and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if a person is lost, it is because he chooses to be lost, not because God desires it. Does that make sense? 
Now, this passage clearly teaches that God chooses some to be saved. Now, I want you to keep your finger there and turn back to John chapter 6, verse 37. Page 1135 there in the Pew Bible. John 6, starting at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Now look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Do you understand what Jesus, the, the, the second person of the Trinity is saying? The first part of verse 37, God elects some to come to me. But the second half of the verse says, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That is free will. Both in the same verse. Both from the lips of Jesus. Jesus teaches that both are true. Now, the question that you're probably struggling with, just like I did, is how do you fit them both together? I have a really simple answer. I don't know. I don't know. I know they're both true. And I think we get into trouble when we go to either one extreme or the other and to say, I'm all of election. If you are not chosen by God, you can't get saved. There are Christians who believe that. And there are Christians who believe on the other end that it's all of my free will. I must choose. But they're both true. And how do you put them together in to make sense? I, I don't fully know. I will admit that I don't fully understand. And as I looked at other commentators as well, people I respect, you know what they said? We don't know either. I think we don't want to camp on one end or the other of the spectrum. We want to hold them in spiritual tension. It is like two tracks for a railroad line. Now, you look in the distance, they seem to kind of come together, but they never do. God's divine election and man's free will never come together. But they're both true. And I think we are required as followers of Christ to keep them in tension, and to hold them with humility. Because there are some who camp on one side or the other and say, it's all of this or it's all of that. It's all of both. The Father, now think about this, the Father, for many, if not all of you, I don't know, selected you. For salvation. And if he didn't select you and you understood on your own and you came to him because of your human free will, that's great. But you're now one of his. 
The Father has selected you. Notice verse 5. It's another one of those doctrines that is misused or misunderstood. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To fill in your blank in your outline, the Father's adopting us as sons. Now there's one of those 25 cent theological words, he predestined us. That word predestined means to determine in advance. He predestined. God determined ahead of time that all that who would be saved, now look at the verse, that all that would be saved would be adopted into his family as sons. I love it that God still teaches me stuff as I study. I did not fully understand until this week that when I was saved, I could have been part of the crowd of those that were saved. The nation Israel, those who are saved before the cross, they're part of a holy nation. But when it comes to the church, when it comes to those who are saved after the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, we are saved But God says, I have something special for you. I would like to adopt you as one of my sons. Now, hear me very clearly. It doesn't say sons and daughters, and I'll explain that in a moment. What I didn't understand until this week is God didn't have to do that. We could have been part of the throng in heaven, singing his praises, saved forever. But God says, you know what? I'm selecting these people and as they understand their need for Christ and they place their faith in him, when they cross the line from death to life, that's called regeneration. That's when someone goes from death to life. But God says, now I would like to make you one of my sons, not one of my children, one of my adult sons. Now, why is that so important? Because when I am adopted into a family as an adult son in the Greek-Roman culture, that son, that new adopted son, now has full rights to the inheritance. And that's why it doesn't say sons and daughters, because in that culture, daughters did not have rights of inheritance. So... When I cross from death to life, God says, now understand I chose you. Understand, I am now going to make you one of my full-grown sons, which means you are now part of the inheritance that I have for you. And it says other places in the New Testament that we are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Now, why is that possible? Only because of one reason. Because we have been adopted as sons. That blew me away. That I now have just as much rights to the riches of heaven as Jesus Christ does. 
I'm adopted. And I'm not adopted as a child and have to grow up. No, I'm adopted as a full-grown son. He didn't have to do that. He chose to. I have privileges. I have responsibilities. Matter of fact, if you'd like to see this in more detail, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians is the book before Ephesians. Starting at verse 4, page 1238 there in the Pew Bible. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive, now there it is, adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We have rights and privileges that we don't even fully understand in our own lives. And notice, it says in end of verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. Other translations translate that a little differently. According to his good pleasure. Do you understand that when God adopted me as his son, it gave God great pleasure. He he applauded. He said, man, another, another son, another son, another son. And I think about every time he gets another son, man, that's going to dilute the inheritance, won't it? There's less for me. Well, wait a minute. Every spiritual blessing is mine. The inheritance is so large, it's so immense, I can't fully understand what it means to have even a million people tapping off of it. Then we have verse 6. Paul just breaks out to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In that one verse, there's an exclamation, there's an explanation, and there's an exhortation. Paul just breaks out into praise. He he marvels at God's grace. He has seen that God selected, and then now God has made him a son, adopted. And he realizes what is the explanation, because We are the objects of God's gracious dealing with people. I am the focus. I am the object. And the exhortation, what Paul is saying, let's praise him. Let's praise him for his glorious grace. If you would turn back to your message overflow... I found in some of Swindoll's material Paul's top ten reasons to give God praise. And we're going to give you the first three and we'll finish it up next Sunday. But number, the first one in verse three, 
He has blessed us immensely. He has blessed us immensely. Secondly, He chose us unconditionally. We didn't earn it. We don't work for it. He chose us unconditionally. And thirdly, He adopted us adoringly. It tickles God to take in new sons. So what does this mean for us? I have this morning one simple question. How do you see yourself this morning? Do you see yourself either as a pardoned convict or an adopted adult? Do you see yourself as a pardoned convict, eternally grateful? You have a new lease on life. You're trying to forget the old life in all of its ways and trying to start a new, turn a new leaf. Or do you see yourself this morning as an adopted adult with rights and privileges, with a new life that gives you purpose and direction and goals to be accomplished? I think if I see myself as a sinner saved by grace, that pardoned convict, I'm constantly looking back at my old life and where I was and what I used to do. But if I see myself today as an adopted son, I have a great family. I have an inheritance that has already been given to me that I can draw upon any time I need it spiritually. I think it matters greatly how I now live. So would you look into your own heart? And for some of you, you need to shift because you are an adopted son of the creator of the universe who loves you so much. Matter of fact, you were so special to him that he says to the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, would you please take on flesh and would you die for their sins? That's how crazy he was about you. That's how much he wants you to spend eternity with him as a son of his. If you are here this morning and you have never placed your faith, your free will can say this morning, I choose to trust Christ today. And that would take you from death spiritually to life eternal. For the rest of us, as we partake of the elements this morning, we are adopted sons. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I don't understand that fully. I'm growing into it. But I now have rights and responsibilities that just make me alive. Let's pray.